Hello and thank you for tuning in to Conversing Crime, your podcast on organized crime. I am Valentin and with Fabiana we welcome Jesse Bullock, PhD candidate at Harvard's University Department of Government. She researches organized crime, political economy, corruption and political violence with a regional focus on Latin America and more specifically Brazil. Right now, she researches organized crime's involvement in local and state politics in Rio de Janeiro, which is the subject of her dissertation book project called Machine Gun Politics, Why Politicians Cooperate with Criminal Groups. Talks of corruption and corruption prevention are widespread in the media and political discourses, and it is easily understood that corruption is having a negative impact on society. Yet the extent of the term is certainly not understood properly and is often described in very loose terms. So to begin with, how would you define corruption? Sure. So unfortunately, corruption is one of those terms that everyone kind of has their own definition for, and there is a very, very vast literature uh, just debating how exactly one defines corruption. I kind of have the hunch that it's the type of thing that we're ne will never really be resolved how um, one subfield, whether it's law, economics, political science defines corruption or um, regionally. It means def different things in different types of governments, different regimes, um, and it, it, it varies depending on the ways that economies are structured. So, Uh, to kind of jump the gun, I think that unfortunately we'll never really reach consensus on, you know, how, what is corruption and one singular definition of what corruption is. But I think it is one of those topics where uh, it kind of is a, you know it when you see it, or if it passes the smell test, like if it looks like corruption, if it walks like corruption, it, it probably is corruption. And I think that the most important thing that all of these different forms of corruption have is that at a minimum, they're somehow involving a government official. Um, corruption isn't something that just lives in the private sector alone or in the nonprofit sector, but at a minimum, it has to involve some type of um, favor trading or accepting of payments, either a politician or a bureaucrat or a police officer or any type of individual that somehow is employed by the government. So, and, um, and in addition to that, we assume that that type of favor is usually traded in exchange for um, access or in exchange for some type of beneficial treatment that the government official can provide. So at a very, very um, basic definition, that's what I think that corruption is, is some type of favor buying that at a minimum involves one, um, person or one body that is a part of government. So since corruption is so widespread, one obviously wants to ask, why does it exist? And also to use your own title, why do politicians cooperate with organized crime? Right. Well, so, I mean, so this is actually not necessarily involving corruption all of the time. Um, actually, the subject of my dissertation is about clientelism or vote buying, which is not always, um, again, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the, um, the ways that different scholars talk about what is or is not corruption. Um, but clientelism is 
one of those terms that's kind of adjacent and is related, but isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily fall under the blanket term of corruption either. And clientelism is usually where politicians or political parties try and buy votes of citizens to, in order to get elected. In other words, they don't try to get elected through, um, through pitching a campaign that sounds like it would benefit voters, but they just buy the votes of voters themselves. And if we think about the definition that I just mentioned, actually a lot of times in clientelism, the money is going the opposite direction, where it may be a party or a politician that is trying to buy voters, not someone from the outside that's trying to put money into the hands of, of corrupt officials to try and buy, um, to try and buy them or influence them. So in this project, why do politicians cooperate with organized crime? I argue that they use these types of vote buying, these types of clientelistic tactics and organized criminal groups can be really effective and reliable um, middlemen in order to help them buy voters and in order to help them get elected. And that is really a kind of different phenomenon than we think about when we're talking about organized crime and corruption, which might look like, which exists too. It just isn't the exact subject of um, my, my research. But when we think about organized crime and corruption, a lot of times that looks like, you know, maybe a big drug trafficking organization that is financing a candidate's campaign. And it may be for the implicit promise uh, that uh, if the candidate wins, then they will go easy with law enforcement on that drug trafficking organization, or maybe they will help broker treaties that are favorable for that criminal group. Or if it's a mafia organization that is throwing lots and lots of money behind a candidate, then, you know, the politician will kind of look the other way and let the mafia group extort people and trade in peace. So the really related but kind of different phenomenon, mainly because of the direction of the money and the, um, the nature of the transaction and of the exchange. So now you were explaining a little bit the relationship between those criminal groups and the politicians, but you mentioned that those criminals are middlemen between the politicians and the population, if I can say. Could you give us an example of the impact that they have on the population, how the vote buying can work? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'll tell you specifically about the case that I'm the most familiar with um, in Brazil, in Rio, which is, you know, a lot of times these criminal organizations, they, um, their dominance of voters is organized by territory. So they might be really, really close with, a, let's say, a thousand or so voters in a specific neighborhood that they have like de facto criminal dominance over. So they can control who enters and exits the community, what trade and commerce looks like inside of that community. And, um, and certainly if any type of rival criminal organization were to try to enter, they have military power to be able to fight them or expel that group from trying to come into the territory that they de facto dominate. And what I've observed is that they do the same thing with politicians. So they'll kind of close a deal with a politician that is friendly to them. And then they will use these same techniques that they use when fighting um, other criminal groups. 
news or when fighting the police. And they will, you know, make sure that rival candidates have a really difficult time or um, or is impossible to enter and to just go around and distribute flyers or to have campaign events in the community. Candidates that are not, that haven't really paid up or paid the price aren't able to enter. And uh, it's very difficult for them to just reach and contact the voters that live in that community. And then of course, because they are, you know, coercive means and they have weapons and people fear them, then on the day of the election themselves, then they, to varying degrees, can mobilize this coercive power to threaten voters to go to the polls to vote for their preferred candidate. So there's kind of both a, a rival candidate story of, you know, protect, uh, protecting the border and keeping people out and a voter level story of what's happening uh, between them and the citizens themselves, where it's more so them relying on their coercive power to make sure that voters go to the polls and vote for their preferred candidate. So you just mentioned their coercive power. Could you expand on it and explain us what it relies on exactly? Well, I, again, thinking about this specific example, I mean, these groups are, they do use violence very freely. Not necessarily always against, or actually rarely against citizens. Um, context where citizens comply with their wishes, you know, but most of it, but the, like the prevalent guns is uh, out of control in Rio de Janeiro. These groups have access to uh, astonishing numbers of military grade weapons mm -hmm. that they usually use for fighting the police or for fighting rival groups. So they're heavily armed um, and Although they're not, you know, firing at civilians, firing these weapons at residents, they are using them kind of in plain sight when they're fighting rivals or fighting the police. So I think for any resident that lives in one of these communities, it's a very credible threat of coercion just because they see how heavily armed these criminal groups are. And, um, and even though, you know, they're not sh shooting community members, they're... I guess you could imagine you're um, trying to put yourself in the shoes of any one resident, like that would be a very risky calculus to make of thinking if you would want to cross um, the wishes of a group that was, uh, that had so much firepower. We sometimes hear that corruption is a crime that enables all crimes. How do you stand on that statement? Yeah, I... Uh, I have heard that as well, although I don't remember the source. Um, but I think I th I'm a little torn. On one hand, you know, I think that there's a, a real grain of truth in this statement of um, financial crimes, crimes that are involving, that are already at a really high level of state capacity and crimes that, um, are involving government officials. I think that certainly corruption can kind of be like the straw that breaks the camel's back uh, leading to a series of these types of crimes that are um, that just grow building on top of each other and can lead to, um, lead to officials looking the other way or continuing to not investigate and not investigate crimes until things uh, really pile up. Um, but because a lot of the work I do straddles 
financial crimes, white collar crimes, but also violent crime too. I, I just wanna be clear in particular on that note that, I mean, perhaps corruption might lead to um, poor quality of investigations for violent crimes, or certainly corruption in the police is intimately related to violent crimes between criminal groups too. But I think that the cause of violent crime and it uh, is distinct from corruption and fixing corruption alone is not necessarily the cause to um, reducing levels of violence. Of course, it would certainly help, but as like a linchpin, um, reducing corruption alone is, is not necessarily good enough to be able to really reduce uh, permanently violent crime. Now in regards to corruption reduction, what could anti-corruption policies consist in? And could you maybe give us an example in Latin America? Yeah, sure. Latin America is interesting because there's been uh, several really, really large scale anti-corruption. I wouldn't even call them policies. I would call them like crusades. There's a lot of heterogeneity in anti-corruption policies in Latin America. And um, some of them have been really small at the micro level, while others have been very, very large, stretching um, multiple countries. One of these is the Lava Jato scandal or Lava Jato operation that targeted the scandal. Um, Lava Jato is also called the car wash scandal for people that don't speak Portuguese. And you know, this was a corruption operation that began in Brazil targeting um, the construction company Odebrecht and uh, who was responsible for building lots of large infrastructure projects, um, some venues for the World Cup, Olympic stadiums, and many, many infrastructure projects, not just in Brazil, but across Latin America. And this was probably the largest anti-corruption probe in certainly in Brazil, but um, even in the Americas that, you know, employed several, a, a huge team of prosecutors at the federal level. Um, once they re started realizing how big and how involved the corruption scandal was, then there were split off different divisions at the state level, um, some talks of investigations at the municipal level. So across levels of government, across states, across countries. This was a massive scandal and massive um, anti-corruption operation and investigation. It's also a little challenging to comment on because um, if you've seen in the news lately as well, there's been some questions that have been raised about the ethics that the prosecutors have used, what the um, whether or not some of these prosecutions were politically motivated. And honestly, the latest information about the Lava Jato case, it, it changes quite a bit, you know, every two to three months. So the case is still very much, even though the, um, the formal trials and the formal investigations have concluded, what we're learning about Lava Jato still really, really continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, we have these massive operations um, like that, like the car wash investigation. But then also some of the ones that I think, although they're a lot smaller in scale, have proven to be really effective are things like audits at the municipal level. There's a lot of great political science and economics research that shows that um, 
you know, just auditing a mayor's spending in not huge municipalities like Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo, but small to medium-sized municipalities, um, working to disseminate this information to voters can really um, move the needle on both, you know, instilling fear or caution in mayors for malfeasance looking forward in the future. And even if that mayor themselves isn't audited, if they live in a municipality that has been audited in the past, there's some research that shows that they're less, that from that past experience, they're less likely to um, engage in corruption in the future. And as well as um, voters doing a pretty good job of kicking out mayors that have been proven to be corrupt or mayors that didn't really perform well on some of these audits. So that it tells us two really interesting things that, you know, an audit that has, or a municipality that has a history of an audit kind of remembers that. And it might teach either the bureaucrats or the politicians in this area that um, good government is important and that they should uh, be wary of behaving badly. And then the second thing is that this is something actually that voters do care about enough to um, throw someone out of office if they have been caught behaving badly. So I think that the evidence is a lot clearer and in many ways a lot more optimistic for some of these smaller types of uh, initiatives than the really, really large um, investigations and corruption probes because for some of these, I mean, it is true that the effect is harder to measure, but also one of the most serious consequences that we've seen of the car wash scandal is um, really intense political polarization and, and the risks of politicization of the scandal. And it's this is also another thing that is really difficult to quantify, but that I think that uh, the consequences of this are should be taken really, really seriously, and it has implications for you know the health of democracy and the future of democracy in some of these countries that have been really torn apart by large-scale corruption crises like Brazil. That's so interesting. So, what you're telling us is that those small-scale initiatives don't tackle the root causes behind corruption, but because of the effects they have on politicians, they still have the potential of deterring it in the future. Exactly, exactly. I think that, right, there, there's kind of both a, a voter-driven mechanism operating and a uh, politician-driven op uh, mechanism operating where it has a deterrent effect on future politicians, but also it's credible because they see that voters will uh, kick them out of office if they behave badly. Okay, very clear. Thank you for all your answers and the insights you provided today. Those are the topics we wanted to discuss with you, but do you think there is anything we might have overlooked? I don't think so. Um, thank you so much for having me on. This has been such a pleasure to share my research. And um, and I hope that, you know, this mini lesson about Brazil is, is interesting and useful for definitely. your listeners. Oh, definitely. It was really insightful for us to discuss with you. So I'm sure it's going to be as interesting for our audience. And thank you very much for accepting our invite and taking the time to support our project. You just listened to Conversing Crime, the podcast on organized crime. Stay tuned for the next episode.